Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a very special one. In honor of Israel's 72nd birthday, Rabbi Wilds interviewed Israeli writer Yossi Klein Halevi. He is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. So, without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. Just to allow people to get online, but I want to welcome everyone to uh, both uh, MJE's Lunch and Learn program and also uh, the Wilds cast, my new podcast. Um, and we're doing this specifically the day before Yom HaTzma'ut, Yom HaZikaron, Yom HaTzma'ut's uh, declaration or the celebration, rather, of the independence of Israel. And um, we're going to be hearing from an extraordinary personality in Israeli life and in Jewish life uh, throughout the world. Um, so it is such a great, great honor for those of you just tuning in um, to have Yassi Klein Halevi with us this afternoon um, in honor of Yamat Ma'ut. I want to take this opportunity uh, to thank a dear friend of both Yassi and mine, uh, Michelle Safin, who used to work at MGE and is now doing amazing work uh, in conflict resolution together with Yassi. And I want to just take this opportunity to thank Michelle. Uh, for making this connection with someone that I've been a fan of for many, many years. Uh, I also want to thank Atara Nuyor, now Atara Nuyor Brenner, for helping to set this up initially, and now to Binyamin, who's actually online with us now, um, Binyamin Cohn, who's handling all of our logistics. Uh, I want to begin by welcoming you, uh, Yassi, thank you. Thank you. To, our, to our program, to the podcast, um, I've been a huge fan of your books on Israel for many years. Just like to do a little uh, intro so our viewers get to really know who you are, uh, just at least objectively, and then we can have a conversation if that's okay. Uh, welcome. So, uh, uh, Yassi Klein Halevi's 2013 book, Like Dreamers, was an extraordinary uh, work, and it won the Jewish Book Council's Everett Book of the Year Award. His latest book, which we're going to get into, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, which I also really enjoyed, was a New York Times bestseller. And Yossi writes for leading op-ed pages here in the United States, like the New York Times, uh, the Wall Street Journal, and is a former contributing editor to the New Republic. Uh, Yossi Klein-Halevi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, and together with Imam Abdullah and Tepli, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. That good. Okay. Uh, Imam and Tepli of Duke University, they together direct the institute, the Shalom Hartman Institute's Muslim Leadership Initiative, which teaches emerging young Muslim American leaders about Judaism, about Jewish identity, and about Israel. In 2013, um, Yassi was a visiting professor of Israel studies at the Jewish Theological Seminary here in New York City, and he served as a writer in residence at the University of Illinois. He was a senior fellow at the Shalem Center. I'm a huge fan of the Shalem Center in Jerusalem, a great think tank, and he was there from 2004 until 2010. Born in Brooklyn, uh, Yassi moved to Israel. He made Aliyah in 1982. He lives in Jerusalem with his wife, Sarah who helps run a center for Jewish meditation. I hope we can learn about that as well. And they have uh, Bli Ayin Hara, three children. Uh, welcome. 
And if I left anything out, Yossi, please, please tell me. And I especially want to welcome you on the cusps of Israel's 72nd birthday. Such an honor to have you at this suspicious time. Well, thank you, Rabbi. And I have to tell you, I'm, I, I've wanted to meet you for years. Uh, we have two very close friends in common. You mentioned Michelle and also Matt Ronan. And so, uh, and Matt has been trying to get us together for years, and I'm so glad that that uh, it's finally happened. So, thank you, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. It's really, really an honor. So, you know, um, we actually started talking about this before the coronavirus came out, um, and now we're doing this from our homes. And I hope you and your family are doing okay at this crazy time. Tell us a little how you're doing and how you think Israel's doing in general with the corona crisis and maybe something we could learn uh, in New York City. Well, uh, for me personally, I, I, I have to admit that life has not really changed all that much. I spend most of my time in my room writing, and I'm still doing that uh, with a few less disruptions. And uh, I'm perfectly happy being in semi-quarantine, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, more productive that way. So uh, it's, um, you know, there are certain people for whom uh, Corona, uh, or let's say the lockdown has not been a hardship, uh, curmudgeons and, uh, and writers among them. So uh, uh, in terms of, uh, of Israel generally, um, we've, done, we've done well, uh, we were among the very first countries to basically shut down. You know, we, we, we have a, a well-developed instinctive response to emergency. And most Israelis tend to be disciplined at times of emergency. Uh, the, um, the, I would say that, that there are two groups in particular uh, for whom Corona has been potentially a turning point. Uh, and these are the two groups that are on the periphery of Israeli society. And I'm speaking about the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, uh, and the Arab-Israeli community. The Haredim are about 10% of the population, Arab-Israelis about 20%. And these are the two groups that don't participate in the military experience, which is really the seminal unifying bonding of, 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 of Israeliness. Uh, these are two groups that uh, have a very uneasy relationship with the Israeli mainstream and with Israeli identity. Uh, the way this has played out for Arab Israelis has been very good. Uh, Arab Israelis have been uniquely positioned to take advantage of this moment because they are, they are heavily represented in the health professions. Uh, almost 20% of Israeli doctors are Arab, 25% of our nurses, and almost 50% of our pharmacists. And the media has really been focusing on the coexistence that's happening in the, in the hospital wards, in the corona wards. Uh, some fantastic images that have gone viral <coughs> in Israel. One showed a, uh, an Arab doctor bringing in a safer Torah into a Corona ward, wow. very moving. Wow. Uh, an, another image that went viral showed a medic, a team of medics, uh, an Arab and a Jew, parking their ambulance on a street in Beersheva, getting out of the ambulance. He puts on a talit 
and the, and the Jew puts on a talit and the Arab uh, takes out a prayer rug. And they just oh. pray just uh, on the street. And uh, that image really went viral. That's and incredible. so, you know, so it, there, there have been some very touching um, moments that have brought Arab-Israelis closer to the mainstream, that have normalized Arab-Israelis as citizens, as, uh, as, as fellow citizens in a new kind of war. And this is Israel's first war that has nothing to do with security and nothing to do with the Arab-Israeli conflict. And so in this war, our fellow Arab citizens have taken really a front, a front rank as, um, as fellow participants in, in, in this Israel, strange Israeli movement. And so before you move on to the Haredim, so you see that really as a very positive step in terms Absolutely. of- Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Potentially. Potentially. The question yeah. is, you know, will, will it, will we as a society be able to capitalize on this moment of great goodwill? Uh, a poll yeah. was just released by the Israel Democracy Institute yesterday showing 77% of Arab Israelis say that they feel themselves to be an integral part of the state of Israel and that their fate is connected with the state. 77%. It's the highest ever. And that, I, I call that the corona effect. That's, wow. you know, when, when Arab Israelis feel embraced by the society, by the Jewish mainstream, when they feel that we're relating to them as fellow citizens, they tend to respond in kind. So that's what we're seeing playing out in the Arab-Israeli uh, community. This is a very good moment for Arab-Jewish relations. Again, it could disappear, but at this moment, this is something really to, to appreciate and, and savor. The Haredi experience has been the, almost the exact opposite in certain ways. Uh, there's a great deal of anger here uh, toward the Haredim for listening to their leaders uh, rather than the health experts, at least initially. Most of the Haredi community did eventually fall into line, but they lost a crucial week or two when they were listening to uh, rabbis who were completely out of touch, including a 92-year-old uh, rabbi, uh, Kanievsky, who didn't even know there was a plague, and he was asked, "Should we shut the yeshivas?" And he said, "Of course, no, of course not. How do you? How can you shut yeshivas?" He didn't know there was a plague. So, there, the the very high toll uh, among uh, Haredim is, is is a result of that. Something like a third of all patients hospitalized with corona in Israel are Haredim. That's it's not an official statistic, but that's what I've heard. Now, what? ultimately prevented uh, a disaster here on the scale that we're seeing among Haredim in Borough Park, for example, right. was the very rapid intervention by the IDF. And this is an extraordinary moment. The IDF placed the Haredi city of Bnei Brak under complete curfew over Pesach and took over the, 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 the task of feeding Bnei Brak getting the right hechsherim, the right, the right uh, uh, religious, how do you say hechsherim? Rabbinic uh, supervision. R rabbinic supervision. For, for, the, for, for the kosher, yeah. And for Pesach, of course, it has to be on a very high level. Right. And, um, and IDF soldiers went door to door in Bnei Brak for a week 
taking care of people. And for wow. many of the Haredim, it was their first experience with, with the LBF. And they left behind a tremendous impression. They were courteous, they were efficient. And the IDF stopped the plague in Bnei Brak. Wow. So here you have a very fraught moment for the Haredim. Their rabbinic leaders failed them. And they were saved by the IDF. So, so I don't know how Haredim are processing this. Right. But if you were a young Haredi and you've just seen this play out, I would imagine you would have some questions about rabbinic authority. Yeah, I mean, I, we, I went through something similar here in New York, Yossi, because there was that week to two weeks, I'm part of a group of rabbis, about 30 or so rabbis in Manhattan, where we were meeting regularly on the phone uh, to discuss the situation. And in the very, very beginning, we at MGE, and you know, we're a program for 20s and 30s, and we had this question, should we shut down for Purim or not? And there was a very uh, lively debate that took place on the phone. Most of the rabbis, and these are more modern Orthodox uh, in terms of orientation, were pretty much, we need to shut down, we need to model this behavior. Mm -hmm. And I made the point at the time, and I said, look, if anyone could stay open, you know, Purim for us is huge. And we do a lot of our outreach and engagement around these fun holidays that are, you know, with the, with the big parties. For us not to have Purim, but I just said, you know, at the end of the day, we need to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And I said to one of the other rabbis who's much older than I, you know, and I said that I'm concerned not only about the disease, I'm not only concerned with someone, let's say, who is older that comes to MGE, contracts it from someone else who doesn't even know they're carrying it. Of course, that's the primary concern. But we need to be concerned with Chil Hashem. We need to be concerned with, with how Judaism is, looks to the authorities in New York City. Are we getting with the game? Are we playing games and trying to squeeze things in here and there? Or are we trying, as I say, to be part of the problem and that solution? I asked one of the other rabbis, I said, even if it can't be demonstrated that there's a physical danger, I'm wondering whether or not the spiritual danger of making Judaism look bad is enough of a reason for us not to come to shul for poor of all of us. Well, you've also given me another reason for why I live in Israel, because we don't have those populations. The authorities here are Jews. And uh, if, you make, if you make Judaism look bad, they're angry at you, but not, but not for anti-Semitic reasons. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how different the Israeli and American Jewish psyches operate. And... Um, and and well, I, I wasn't I, I I wasn't I wasn't really concerned about anti-Semitism like from the police force. Although you're right, no, no, but I but I no, I know what you're talking about, and there is that feeling of wanting Judaism to 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 look its best to right. to non-Jews. But in, you know, maybe maybe in Israel, if we had some of that, Judaism might look a little better <laughs> than it does. Right. <laughs> Maybe we're missing a little bit of that chilul Hashem shaming, mm -hmm. you know, which which helps keep certain people in line. Yeah, Americans tend to be more concerned with um, externals and the way things look than I think Israelis do. <laughs> um, and yeah, maybe that's good. Maybe sometimes that's a good thing. Well, sometimes sometimes it is a good thing. You know, right, in, in right. the same way that a little bit of hypocrisy 
can be a good thing too. Right. So I want to, I want to, I want to <laughs> dive a little into your most recent book because I was really blown away by it. Uh, Letters to my Palestinian neighbor. And for those of you listening uh, to this podcast, to this program, it's a powerful attempt to really reach beyond the walls that separate Israelis and Palestinians. And yes, so you found such a unique way to uh, humanize the conflict. And you have these beautiful, almost poetic uh, scenes where you're on your porch, davening mincha, praying the afternoon service, while Palestinians across the way are reciting their prayers. I highly recommend people, whatever your um, political orientation, religious orientation, it's an extremely thoughtful uh, approach and perspective. Um, what inspired you to write this book? Well, I live literally in the last row of houses on the edge of Jerusalem. The West Bank begins outside my porch. And where I'm sitting now, sitting in my study, I'm looking out on the lights of uh, the Arab village across the way. And separating the Arab village from my neighborhood, French Hill, is a wall, the separation wall, the security wall. And late at night, um, when I, sometimes when I when I can't sleep, uh, I'll sit here and look out at the lights and listen to the Muslim call to prayer, two in the morning and then 4.30 in the morning. And one night I just, I was sitting here thinking about the abyss that separates these few hundred meters from my home and Palestinian homes. And wishing that I could have a conversation with my neighbors and explain to them why I'm here, why the Jewish people is here, why we came home, why we believe this is home, the home that we share with our Palestinian neighbors, why we are an indigenous legitimate people. And I believe, as I believe they are as well. And so one night I just found myself talking having a one-way conversation in my head with my neighbor. And I started writing, Dear Neighbor. And I was writing longhand. It was like a letter, an old-fashioned letter, the kind, of, the kind of thing nobody does anymore. But I wrote, Dear, Dear Neighbor. And I don't know your name. I don't know anything about you. But I sense this intimacy, this entwinement in our lives. I look at the lights in your home, I hear your prayers, and your prayers come into my, my living room. Uh, and yet we know nothing about each other. And, um, and I just started writing, and I couldn't stop. Now, I'm usually a very slow writer. Um, my previous book, Like Dreamers, took me 11 years wow. to write. Almost full-time, 11 years. Wow. And that's... That's more typical of my pace. I'm, I'm very, very slow. Well, we don't have that much time. Let me just... <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. And, uh, but this book relatively flew. It, it poured out of me, and I realized that I had been writing this book for, for years and years in my head, and it was all there. It was just waiting to come out. And the, um, 
the purpose of the book is really to try to explain who the Jewish people are and what our story is. And that story is almost completely unknown among Palestinians. And it's, it, and I realized, you know, as I was working on this book, that we've been in a hundred year war with the Palestinians and with much of the Arab world. And in all of this time, no one on our side ever thought of turning to the Palestinians, turning to the Arab world and trying to explain what is the Jewish people? Why, how do we work in a way that's a little bit different from Islam and Christianity? We're not just a religion, we're also a people. That's why we have, we have a connection to a land. That's why we have a state. What is the, what is the spiritual connection between peoplehood and religion? Uh, all of these different components of Jewish identity, which we take instinctively for granted. We understand that Judaism is, is, is a religion, is a peoplehood, uh, is an ethnicity to some extent. Uh, and, and, but how do these pieces fit together? And so I started writing this book and it's interesting, Mark, because initially I thought I was going to write two books. The second book was going to be Letters to a Young American Jew. And about midway through writing this book, I realized that I don't have to write that other book because much of what I want to say in this book to my Palestinian neighbor is in fact what I would say to a young American Jew to try to explain the intricacies of, of Jewish identity. And again, these very complicated connections uh, that you can be a Jew and an atheist. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a Muslim or a Christian and you become an atheist, you're out of the game. You're no longer a Muslim or a Christian. Judaism works differently. And what is the religious understanding of the meaning of Jewish peoplehood? So these are some of the issues that I tackle in the book. And so the book, of course, the book is, it deals with the conflict. It, it deals very much with the political issues. But I see the book much more in terms of an attempt to try to explain the basics of Jewish identity. Wow. It's, and I'm, I'm dying to ask you one question after reading it, because this is not something you addressed in the book. But if you couldn't wave a magic wand and solve the Middle East conflict in one fell swoop, tell me, what would that society look like? Was it a two-state solution? Is it a one-state Look, I um, and I, I write this in the book that that I I loathe and fear the two-state solution. I loathe it because it would rip away parts of of the the Jewish homeland, which are as precious to me, if or maybe more precious to me, than the area around Tel Aviv and all the way down to Ashdod and Ashkelon. That was never the heartland of, the, of, of Israel. And for me, it's not the West Bank and it's certainly not occupied territory. It's Judea and Samaria. But there's another people living there. There's another people with whom we share this land. And with a great deal of pain, almost with a sensation of a physical amputation, I feel we have no choice but to, but to partition this land which has been the plan on the table almost since the beginning of Zionism, going back almost a hundred years, partition in one form or another. 
uh, has been accepted by a majority of the Zionist movement. And so as much as I loathe partition or the consequences of partition, I embrace it. And I also say that I fear partition because I do fear the creation of a Palestinian state in the West Bank. It's one reason why I believe we can't create a Palestinian state anytime soon. I don't see the conditions being right, but I also want to restrain settlement buildings so that we don't preclude the possibility of a two-state solution. So you feel, you feel that even given what happened after you know, Gaza was returned and, or given back um, after all, you know, Oslo, and you still feel that ultimately maybe, maybe we're not ready for it. Maybe the Palestinians don't have the right leadership or Israel doesn't have the right leadership. I don't know. But you still feel that like going down the road um, that, that's the only real permanent kind of... Look, look, at this point, neither of us has the right leadership. And on the Palestinian side, I don't see anywhere near uh, a readiness to accept Israel's legitimacy. And as a result of this book, I've been spending time with Palestinians and having mm-hmm. meetings and, and doing outreach. And... Um, But I do believe that the only thing worse than a two-state solution is a Mm one-state. And I don't call it a one-state solution because it's not a solution, it's a dissolution. It would, God forbid, mean the unraveling of the Jewish state. And so for those reasons, I remain committed to the principle, if not yet the implementation, but the principle of a two-state solution. Uh, I should say, Mark, that um, I see we we're, we have on screen uh, the cover of the, this is the hardcover edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if anyone is interested in, in getting the book, I would urge you to get the paperback edition, which has a new epilogue of 50 pages of Palestinian responses to, uh, to the book. And uh, the book ends with uh, with Palestinians in response to to the book, and there's some of the responses have been incredible. In fact, throughout the Middle East, I've been getting letters. The book was translated into Arabic. I invited people to download the book in Arabic for free, and probably several thousand people have done so uh, by this point. Uh, the book was recently reviewed very favorably. Uh, in Saudi Arabia's leading news weekly, Al Majala. And that's something like that has never happened before. A, a book about Zionism, about the Jewish story, uh, being endorsed by a leading Saudi publication. And so that's an indication that there is deep change happening in parts of the Arab world. I wouldn't say in Palestinian society, mm-hmm. but certainly in parts of the Arab world we're seeing an openness to Israel that we've never experienced before. Mm-hmm. I just want to mention, just because it's uh, two minutes to 1 p.m. here and two minutes oh, to 8 o'clock yeah. your time. So Yossi shared with me, you shared with me that uh, Israel's siren, uh, which it sounds on both Yom HaShoah, on Holocaust um, Remembrance Day last week, and on Yom HaZikaron, Israel's day to remember its fallen soldiers, is going to be sounded uh, in just another minute or two in Israel. 
Um, I don't know if we're going to be able to actually hear it, but Yassi is going to have to take a little break from us during that time because uh, it is really a moment of, um, of connection, really a moment to connect with the bravery and the heroism and the sacrifice of so many Israelis over the years who have given their lives and fallen in defense of the Jewish state. And I thought it would be really appropriate for us to observe that two-minute um, moment of silence as well, Jews throughout the world, if that's uh, okay with everyone. So I'm just giving a little heads up. Yeah, so you tell me when you, when you hear it, um, and we'll just cut our conversation when that happens. Yeah, so what we do in Israel is we stop whatever we're doing and everyone stands. You'll see cars pull over to the side of the road or side of a highway and people just standing for the duration. And the siren is, is two minutes. Mm -hmm. um, on uh, Yom HaShoah, on Holocaust Memorial Day, there is one siren during the day. On Yom HaZikaron, tonight, we will have a siren, and then there'll be another siren tomorrow, which really, I think, says a lot about the depth of this day, which in some ways is, I would say, more raw and immediate for Israelis than Holocaust Memorial Day. Holocaust Memorial Day is gradually becoming part of our historical memory. Uh, Memorial Day for the Fallen Soldiers is very much still a part of our daily reality. There's the siren. Okay, we're gonna stand as well. Uh, those of you listening and tuning in, uh, we are now taking a two minute moment of silence to be together with our brothers and sisters in Israel, thinking about all of the fallen soldiers of Israel who've given their lives defending the Jewish state. We're gonna stand. Yeah, I did hear it. We, I, we could hear it. Thank you. And, and I really appreciate you. You know, I guess things happen in life for a reason. I think all of our viewers and everyone who's listening here, you know, we, we think of Memorial Day in the United States. You remember what Memorial Day is like in America. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a day of, uh, of barbecues and, 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 and sales in stores, department stores. Um, in Israel, it's obviously a very, very different experience. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Here it is uh, really our deepest, um, our deepest wound. And it's interesting to compare Holocaust Day with Memorial Day for the soldiers. And Holocaust Day is the day when we mourn uh, the consequences of Jewish powerlessness. And Memorial Day is when we mourn the consequences of Jewish power. And so the memory of Jewish powerlessness is really receding into history. It was the Shoah was, we've just marked the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the camps. 
and um, which uh, Bergen Belsen was liberated just just now. Last week was the 75th anniversary. But that really is, is at this point, an historical memory. The consequences of the price that we pay to maintain Jewish power, our ability to protect ourselves, uh, is something we experience every day. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that was very, very powerful. And um, I want to get back a little into the book and then maybe come back to what you just touched on now about your personal view on Zionism, on religious Zionism. You know, in the United States, uh, things have become, I think, even more polarized. Um, and, and, and the Jewish community, I think, has become more polarized. You know, Yossi, I'm involved in outreach. Most of our constituency at MJE are not from the Orthodox community, primarily conservative reform or less affiliated backgrounds. Um, Orthodox Jews tend to be a little more to the right when it comes to Israel. Um, Jews outside of the Orthodox community tend, generally speaking, uh, to be a little more to the left. What commonalities do you think can we find when it comes to issues that you bring up in your book? Because I have to tell you, as a rabbi, I, and, and, and I mentioned to you before, I have a background in international affairs. I studied in the Middle East Department at Columbia for graduate school. And I have to really keep my own personal opinions to myself because it's so explosive. It's so divisive. And it's hard enough, I don't want to say selling Judaism or getting young people to embrace their heritage as it is. Um, right. And, and, and to throw in, you know, whether you like Trump, you hate Trump, whether you, you territories, you want to give back land, you don't want to give back land. Where, where can we find some commonality between the great question. stripes? It's a great question. And uh, one of the more pleasant surprises that I had I, in releasing the letters book was the reception that it got from the the uh, left and the right in American Jewry. And I'm not talking about the far left or the far right. Uh, both groups hated the book, and I was pleased by that. But I'm talking about real left and real right, uh, represented uh, by the Forward mm -hmm. and Commentary magazine. Mm -hmm. And both, both of those publications uh, endorse the book, which really surprised me. I thought that both would hate the book. And when you read the reviews, they both start out in very similar ways. They both start out a little bit cynical. Um, and you see that the reviewer did not want to like the book. But in the end, each of them, for very different reasons, endorse, endorses the book. What the forward appreciated was the book's empathy for Palestinian suffering and the fact that I'm reaching out to Palestinians, uh, which is unfortunately pretty rare in Israel today. Uh, most Israelis have really shut down, don't want to have the Palestinian conversation. And I understand that after years of terrorism and rockets and missiles, I, I, I understand. But I think that it's short-sighted and we need to have those conversations. So the forward appreciated the outreach and commentary appreciated the defense of Zionism. And what I learned from that to try to really answer your question is that 
what each side, what the left and the right, really in a way are looking for, for the, from the other camp in relation to Israel is the left is looking to the right and saying, don't you have any compassion for what's happening to the Palestinians? Don't you have any unease for the fact that the Jewish state has been occupying another people for over 50 years and there's no end in sight? Doesn't that make you feel at least a little bit uneasy? And that's one, that's one expectation. And on the right, the right turns to the left and, and says to them, in effect, doesn't the fact that Israel is the most hated country in the world, certainly for, for progressives, that progressives have turned Israel into the, into the evil country, the symbol of evil in the world, doesn't that get you upset? And so I share both of those uh, emotions, both of those responses. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe what each camp is really looking for from the other side is not necessarily agree with my position, but validate my emotional response here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and it's, you know, that's, when I moved to Israel, I, um, uh, and I moved at a very fraught moment. It was uh, the summer of 1982, which was the beginning of the first Lebanon war. That was the first, and thank God, the only war that divided Israelis. In every other war we, before or since we've come together, wars always unite us, bring out the best in Israeli society. The Lebanon war brought out the worst of us. We were shouting at each other in the streets. It was uh, it was Israel's Vietnam. They said. It was it yeah. was it was our Vietnam experience, and that's when I made Aliyah that summer. I I made Aliyah into the Israeli schism. <clears throat> at its worst moment, uh, I would say until the Rabin assassination. And <clears throat> and that experience taught me or gave me this horror for hatred among Jews. And I was working as a journalist at the time. And one of the events that I covered was a Peace Now demonstration in February 1983, in which a far-right activist threw a grenade into the crowd, killing one of the, one of the demonstrators, uh, who happened to have been a paratrooper. And, and so that's, and I was, and I, I got to that demonstration right after the grenade had been thrown. I saw the blood on the pavement. And, and these experiences shaped me as an Israeli and made me a passionate centrist. Mm -hmm. And the center for me is that ground that tries to understand the various Jewish positions. And that's been my work as a writer. That's been my work as, a, as an Israeli citizen. Well, I, I really appreciate that response. Um, and I think the part that we can learn from in, in, in the United States or really throughout the world is the, the, the distinction you just made between agreeing versus validating the other person's emotions. There's not enough, and I, I see this just in the American political scene today. Um, there's just not enough validating, you know, and, and, and unfortunately it's been, um, it's been pushed a little by the media 
I, I, I'm not, I can't blame it on the media. The, the issue exists, but it's exacerbated when the media continues to, on CNN, you know, portray one perspective and on Fox a different perspective and almost um, demonize the other point of view as opposed to trying to understand the other point of view and saying, you know what, I really disagree. I think you're being naive. I think, or I think you're being too radical, whatever it is. But the idea of just validating, that's what I felt in the book. And I just think I, I really applaud you because there's, there's such oh, a need. You. It's not going to change people's opinions, but it's going to allow respect between people that, <laughs> you know, who, who have opposing points of view. And I just, I feel that's deteriorating in the United States. It is very much. And, and I think that really what we're talking about ultimately is not a political position, but a, but a spiritual position. <clears throat> and that is to have the humility uh, to acknowledge that I could be wrong or I may not have all the insights. And I learned that the hard way in Israel in 1982 and onward, when I started listening carefully to the left and the right, and the left would say, how, how can we continue to occupy the Palestinians and still remain a Jewish and democratic country? And I thought, that makes sense. And then I'd listen to the right, and they would say, how can we make, how can we make peace with a Palestinian national movement that denies our legitimacy? And I thought, makes sense to me. And that's when I realized that I was a little bit left, a little bit right, and that the left and the right were fighting inside of me. Mm -hmm. And that made me a centrist. But again, I, I really see that as a, as a spiritual position, which is acknowledging that, that politics, politics is not religion. You know, we, we, we've confused politics with religion. If you want to have a ground for faith and certainty and messianic utopian dreams, save it for religion. Politics is dealing with a messy, imperfect world and trying to make it a little bit better. Politics is the art of the possible. Religion is imagining the world as we wish it would be. These are very different, different approaches. And, and I want my religion to be passionate and my politics to be boring. And what, we, and what I'm seeing playing out today, certainly in America, uh, is exactly the opposite. Uh, young people are getting, are getting devout about their politics. And you can't argue with my political position because this, this is theology. It's not politics anymore. And, yeah, and religion and, yeah. is becoming increasingly... Um, thin and, uh, and, 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 and small. Now, it's a very astute commentary on what's happening, particularly with young people in the United States. And it's turning, even though everyone's digging their heels in, it's, it's at the same time turning people off to public service. It's making a whole new generation of Americans cynical about public, about, you know, public life, about uh, public service. I want to I want to get back into the religion and the because you know you are a spiritual religious personality I see, and I want to know how what would you say to a young millennial Jew in America to um, to I mean well actually 
I'm going to go back for a minute. Um, how did your faith and your religious devotion, let me put it this way, influence the writing of your book and your outlook? Because yes, there are two separate things, clearly, and we should be boring about politics and we should be passionate about religion, but clearly, you know, you just mentioned humility, what will allow us to uh, uh, validate the emotions of an opposing view is a sense that I may not know at all. And that's a religious concept. Anavan, anivut, yes. is a very, very important religious concept <laughs> in Judaism. So tell us a little more about your religious devotion and your faith influencing your positions and your writings. Well, for me, the, um, the struggle to live a devotional life is really the core of, of of uh, how I define the meaning of my life, and it's a struggle. It's a it's a it's an ongoing struggle to try to live in a way where the center point is my relationship with God, and that's very hard in the modern world. It's very hard in the world that I that I live in, that I've lived in all these years. I've been a journalist. I was a journalist for many years. And, and um, I live very much in, in the real world. But my, my inner life, uh, which, is, um, which is defined by that longing for God's presence, for God to be real, not that God should not just be something that I believe in, but in some sense live with. And a mystical approach to, to religion, a, a uh, you know, the, the, the wonderful line in, uh, in Tehillim, in Psalms, Ta'amu uru kitov Adonai, uh, taste and see that God is good. That's an extraordinary line. You know, we daven it, we say it, you know, but stop and think about what we're saying. What an amazing line. It's, it's, Tehillim is, is urging us to experience, to taste and see, to experience God in a, in a real way, in a tactile way. And that's the invitation of, of the mystics, the mystics of every religion. Uh, we've lost that a little bit in Judaism in, in the last 200 years. Modernity has not been kind to, 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 to the vitality of Jewish faith. Uh, and I would say that that's true in the Orthodox community as well. I grew up in the Orthodox community and I, I, uh, I, I felt a certain impoverishment, spiritual impoverishment. Mm. And, um, and so this is, this is true, I think, across the board. In, uh, in Jewish life today. And for me, one of the great challenges of Judaism, Jewish the Jewish people in this century is going to be the, the resacralization of, uh, of the Jewish people. And, and that process of resacralization needs to impact the Orthodox as much as the rest of the Jewish people. Well, to, to first of all, thank you for that very thoughtful response. It's I do think it's happening. I'm seeing it even in my circles. Um, what is when I started doing outreach 25 years ago, everything was very rationally based. You have to convince people that there's a God and make a good case for 
the divinity of the Torah. And I still teach that. And I'm actually writing my own a book as well now on a basic Judaism book. And those are the first few chapters. Oh, wow. But there being what's included now is Ta'amu Re'u. It, it, it's to taste and to feel. People want these experiential. And I think that's why, you know, books like the Tanya are being um, translated and popularized in religious circles and they're being used like by outreach rabbis like myself to engage very um, well-educated, rationally thinking yuppies of New York City. But they, this generation, 21st century, is producing the kind of mindset that wants something spiritual, that wants something experiential, and wants to taste and not simply, you know, convince that there, you know, that this exists. They want to feel it. How do you think uh, Corona is going to influence this? trend ah uh, gosh um i don't know i don't know yet honestly it's a really good question i think that it is um it's put a damper on a lot of our own participants spiritual growth because unless you were raised you know ritualizing all of these things and you're used to doing it and getting up in the morning and wrapping it, it's filling and praying three times a day and you know you're you're um, you're very much dependent on the community, and the community has taken a big beating. Um, I think social orthodoxy also, and I'm sure you're familiar with uh, those who are just sort of going through the motions but not really feeling it. It's taking a it took a real gut punch. One of my teachers said because you don't have the social element. All you've got. Oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, you've got yourself and God. And, and your four walls, there's no shul, there's no public, there's no, the day schools, the whole thing has been thrown up through Corona. So yeah. I think in the Orthodox community, that's, there's a major shift there. Um, I don't know yet in terms of, I'm really hoping this is going to blow over <laughs> sooner than later, because, um, you know, I'm online a lot, but there's only so much you can really get people to feel. Uh, my son, I have a, a, a four kids. My oldest is 22, and he's a musician. You so look we like you're 22 yourself, Mark. <laughs> That's kind. <laughs> Thank, I got a 22-year-old. Thank you. That's kind. Um, but in this room right here, we're doing Kabbalat Shabbat every Friday, Havdal every Saturday night, and we're trying through those, this lens to get to people to, to feel a little. But it's, um, it is not easy now. This is definitely made things more challenging and it's isolated a lot of young people who are between their families and creating families please god one day so i'm wondering if yeah. uh, the morning after uh, there really might be um, a real longing for uh for for god for for to, to make this real you know and uh and you know if um the uh, the novelist Graham Greene uh, once had one of his characters, uh, a monk. I, I forget the name of the book. It was it was terrific, uh, saying that um, someone you know asked why did you become a monk, and he said, "Well, it occurred to me one day that if God is real, then there's nothing more important in life than to try to find that." to try to actually connect with that. And, uh, and that has been, I, I read that many years ago, probably my 20s. Um, and that I'm, line, I'm, I'm writing that down. That's awesome. You know, and that line hit me. I, I, I'm sorry, I, 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 
I don't remember the title of the book offhand, mm -hmm. but I can find it for mm -hmm. you. And um, it was, it was, you know, it just, yeah, yeah. And it was one of those moments that I, I can't say that it changed my life, but it, it clarified a process that I've been, that I've been struggling with. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so for me, you know, if you ask what, what role being a, a religious Jew or religious person has in my life, it's, it's, it defines everything. It defines why I write, what I write, and hopefully the intention behind what I write. So I have two more questions for you, Yossi. This has been amazing. Um, let's stay on the religious spiritual for a moment. We're celebrating Yom Ma'ut tonight and tomorrow, um, Israel's 72nd birthday. MG is a proudly religious Zionist organization. My understanding that within the religious Zionist camp, if you will, there are two perspectives. And I'm just curious if you subscribe to either of these or maybe you have a different one. Mm -hmm. There's sort of the Rav Cook approach, which is the belief that Atchalta de Geula, that the creation of a modern state in the land of our forefathers is the beginning of the unfolding of the messianic redemption, or the Rav Soloveitchik approach, the Koldodido fake, behold, my beloved is knocking that. The Rav did not, you know, pretend to know whether we're living in messianic times or not, and whether the state of Israel is the beginning of Mashiach, but he clearly saw the events leading up to the creation of the state of Israel as what he called Yad Hashem, an expression of God's hand. And therefore, the state of Israel, even though its, uh, its makeup is secular, the army, all of that takes on something religious for the Da'ati Le'umi, for the religious Zionist community. So uh, do, are you a sort of Rav Kuknik in terms of your religious Zionism, or are you more of a Rav Salvechik, or do you have a different understanding? I, I do lean much closer to Rav Kook, but, but I'm very hesitant to say that uh, in the in in recent years, because of the abuse that we've seen, uh, that comes from the combination of religiosity and nationalism. Now, in Judaism, to some extent, that combination is natural, inevitable, but we've really seen a a moral coarsening uh, and and a kind of crude certainty uh, where people make these calculations. Uh, where people know exactly what we need to do politically in order to advance the messianic process. Uh, and, uh, and the moral dimension of those calculations tends to fall by the wayside. And the fate of several million Palestinians has no interest at all in those calculations. Mm -hmm. And so these are people who live in the land. These are, these are my neighbors. And, um, and I understand that we've been at war and I, with, with, with the Palestinians I, and, and I know what we're up against. And yet, where is the, the human dimension in these calculations? And so I've, I've learned to fear the, the abuse of the noble messianic impulse. And I feel the very strong need to restrain it, and I'm very grateful for the counter Soloveitchik voice, <laughs> especially at this point. Again, even though my heart is with um, is is with Rav Cook. With Rav Cook, it's funny. My my uh, one of my teachers. I don't know if you heard of him. 
passed away just five years ago, Rabbi Joseph Grimblot of Blessed Memory. He was a great sure. thinker. And from Queens. He, from Queens, from Forest Hills. He was sure. the rabbi of the Queens Jewish Center. And he was always very nervous about Rav Cook's approach because when you mix messianicism and nationalism, you know, it could be... A, a, a loaded and, gun. Um, it's a loaded gun, gun but, but, you know, um, Rav Cook was famous for, you know, embracing the Chalutzim, whether they were religious or not. He felt that they were building the land and paving the way for the coming of the Mashiach. So, you know, who are we to get in the way? And, and some of the Rav Cook, you know, um, I guess followers in Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cook, his son, who took over the mantle, the Gush Emunim ideology, were very much opposed to land concessions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, if this is a Mashiach, then how can you sort of get right. in the way? And then you had Ravar and Lichtenstein of Blessed Memory, who, by the way, you just reminded me of when you, um, it's one of the greatest compliments I could pay to anyone, when you were talking about how difficult it would be to give up land. He, he used to speak in those same terms because his father-in-law, the great and late Rav Salvechik, was of the opinion that for peace, you could give away the Kotel if it could secure Peace, don't ask me, he would say, whether or not, you know, this could secure peace. That You have to talk to the experts. But from a Jewish values perspective, you know, so it's interesting that you're more of a Rav Kuknik. Sometimes what goes along with that is more of a reticence to, to, yes. um, to, to give up land for peace. Well, you know, lately I've, I've gone back to learning Rav Kook. And what the parts that are drawing me are not at all the parts that uh, excite much of the national religious camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been learning uh, Rav Cook on Torah Ta'it on evolution. Now, Rav Cook was an evolutionist, and he actually uh, endorsed, to some extent, Darwinian evolution. Now, this was extraordinary. He was, after all, a Haredi rabbi, uh, this is the turn of the 20th century, the time of the Scopes trial in America. <laughs> and there's Ralph Cook taking very seriously Darwinian evolution and, and turning it into a, a, a spiritual idea of how God works in the world. And it was thrilling to read that. And, and what's happened with the um, coarsening of the national religious messianic approach is that whole parts of Rav Cook that we desperately need to learn today that are really a, 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 a tremendous source of inspiration uh, for this generation uh, are, are being forgotten and all we get are the, are, is the nationalist Torah of Rav Cook mm-hmm. uh, because that's what can be uh, drafted for the national effort. Right, and right. and we're, we, we are doing a tremendous injustice to a man who I think was our most the most important Jewish mystic mm-hmm. uh, of the last hundred years. Wow. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, we're going to start to wind down, but I wanted to ask um, whether or not um, the role of Israel you know, birthright is major in my world, my Jewish outreach world. What role do you think Israel should be playing in outreach in the spiritual lives of diaspora millennials? You know, diaspora millennials tend to be, you know, have a, um, I mean, I haven't seen this so much. That's what people complain 
that um, millennials are turned off to Israel because of the conflict, and it's no longer um, it is no longer a, a source of inspiration. It's no longer it can no longer be used in the arsenal. In, in our weapon arsenal, if you will, to engage the less affiliated. I mean, I, yeah. I feel that's ridiculous, but a lot of people are saying no. that. I'm just wondering. No. Um, I'm, I, and I have to just tell you autobiographically, I'm still davening and hoping that we're, we're going to be able to take our group to Israel this summer because we literally work off our mm-hmm. trips to Israel every summer. Yeah. It's such a turn-on, such a, a positive Jewish turn-on for young people. What's your feeling about that? I think we're, we're paying the price for the one-dimensional nature of the American-Jewish relationship to Israel. Uh, and here I'm speaking more about the non-Orthodox community because I think the Orthodox community with all the learning programs, and there tends to be a more uh, nuanced relationship with Israel. But uh, in the non-Orthodox community, uh, the relationship with Israel tends to be more political. So you're either, quote, pro-Israel, which is, let's say, the APAC position, uh, where I personally feel more comfortable in, uh, or you're critical of Israel. You're in the J Street position. But either way, your relationship to Israel is political. And we, the American Jewish community, I say we because I spent so much time lecturing in America, uh, the American Jewish community uh, needs to develop a richer and more nuanced language about Israel. Uh, American Jews need Hebrew. You need to be involved in the extraordinary culture that we've created in Israel, the music. I, 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 um, I'm releasing uh, a, um, a, a YouTube uh, clip uh, for Yom Atzma'ut through, through the Shalom Hartman Institute uh, on uh, Israeli music. Mm-hmm. I chose 12 songs uh, that tell us a lot about the state, the experience of statehood. Uh, many of them are classic songs. And it was such an, it was such an exciting experience for me to go into the old music and try to figure out uh, what can I extract to help American Jews understand something of the vitality of this culture. Israeli music today is increasingly religious mm-hmm. in nature. It's increasingly Jewish. Uh, it's very different from the old secular Zionist music. This is music that belongs to diaspora Jews too. It's not only Israeli music. We're, we're, we're taking treasures of the past, uh, the music of Jews of, of 19th century Morocco, 16th century Yemen, and, meet and, and bringing it into musical conversation with contemporary Israeli rock and extraordinary things are happening. And my, my sadness, my frustration is that young American Jews aren't part of this. Now in Israel, I believe we have a lot to learn from the kinds of Jewish experiences and experiments that American Jews have created. I would like to see a real give and take and a shared sense of responsibility for the future of Judaism. Because American Jews and Israelis, we are the two centers today of Jewish life. We are what's left of the diaspora. You have, yes, you have pockets. There's still a strong French Jewish community. You have pockets in different places. But the diaspora is winding down. And we know that. 
the diaspora in Europe, I don't know if it will last another generation. What will last, God willing, is Israel and American Jewry. And we have to figure out what this relationship really means on a deeper level, because we're not just talking about the American-Jewish-Israeli relationship anymore. We're talking about the Jewish people. We are more or less the Jewish people. 90% plus of Jews live in these two centers. And so getting that relationship right isn't just a matter of, 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 of relations between our two communities. This will define the health of the Jewish people. Yeah, and I, I will tell you from um, my own personal experience, uh, it, it, I, I can't see doing what we're doing in America without Israel. I, I don't see, I don't see the, the sustainability of what we're trying to do spiritually in America without Israel. There's just, and, and I, it never ceases. I've done now 20, 20, 20 years of trips with MG. We bring two groups every year to Israel. And um, I just, I, I never grow bored or weary of seeing Israel through the eyes of an American Jew seeing it for the first time. It's just, it's magnificent. And there's just such a power and excitement, vitality and positivity which is why I always say to the, you know, you know, to, to those who are, who are claiming that, you know, we can't really use Israel anymore. Israel's too political. And I think you said it correctly. Israel has to stop being political for American Jews. It has to start or, becoming or only, only, only political. Yeah. It's, it has to start becoming part of the neshama of the soul. Um, of, who we, of who we are. That's, and, that's uh, exactly, that's, that's the definition. Yeah, so I'm hoping, that's one of the, <laughs> another reason we're hoping to get through this corona thing as soon as as possible. The other thing I'd love to do, Yassi, and I'm not going to put you on the spot in front of everyone, but it would be such an honor to, ha- to host you in New York sometime. I think I'd that, more, I, I think, I, I, I think your, you. your voice, your you centrist me. voice is so extraordinarily, important right now, and not just on the political divide between the Israelis and Palestinians, but your spiritual appreciation of Rav Kook and the ideas you were you were articulating to us and how that factors into, you know, um, these, the, 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 the conflict and how we, how we argue with those who we oppose just in terms of, of the, so I, I thank you. I really want to give, just thank you so much and invite you to continue this conversation. Really um, any, par- any parting words of blessing uh, as Israel's turning 72 uh, tonight that you can <laughs> leave us with? <laughs> yeah, you know, may we all be worthy of the sacrifices that we're mourning uh, tonight here and the, the prayers, the aspirations that really went into creating this state and sustaining it. And uh, we've been given a tremendous gift and uh, tremendous opportunity. And um, my prayer is that we will figure out how to, to be worthy of this extraordinary moment of Jewish history, which I think in many ways uh, is actually the, the, the culmination, is the, 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 most, the most amazing time to be a Jew in, in maybe since, uh, since the exodus from Egypt. <laughs> wow. 
Wow, thank you, thank you. I I hope we will be worthy of it, and we can appreciate the uh, the truly spectacular time in history that we that we occupy. Um, thank you, Yossi, for your time. Thank you for thank all you, that you do for the Jewish people and the sense of calm and spiritual connection that you you help promote really for the world. And uh, Hashem should bless you with continued success in your writings and your teachings. And we should, as we say, we should continue the conversation, please, God. And thank you for everything that you do for the Jewish people. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle, for making this happen and everybody else. Um, We will continue, those of you listening still with us, uh, we're going to continue. I'm teaching a class tonight at 8 o'clock called The Miracle of Israel. It'll be on Facebook Live. And uh, tomorrow's... um, uh, Lunch and Learn will continue about our history and understanding of the creation of the modern state of Israel. I'm going to be focusing on the Six-Day War tomorrow. That will be uh, tomorrow at 12.30. Please continue to tune in for all of MGE's happenings and classes and programs. Have a great one, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's show. If you're looking for more information, the website for Yossi Klein Halevi's book, where readers can purchase the new edition and submit responses and read the ongoing dialogue between Yossi and Palestinian readers, can be found at letterstomyneighbor.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.